Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Hey, heads up, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to be joined by Andy Slavitt from the White House uh, on, on today's podcast to talk about the fight against the pandemic, the status of vaccines, the whole debate over opening schools. Uh, Andy is the White House Senior Advisor on COVID-19 Response. Uh, we'll talk to him about the variants as well. But but before we, we get to, uh, to Andy... Um, Wow, uh, I've got some breaking news. I'm just starting the podcast this morning, and we got the confirmation that Ted Cruz did, in fact, fly off to Cancun in the middle of this natural slash man-made foobar disaster in his home state of Texas. So, of course, the whole world is dunking on 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 Ted Cruz. It's one of those moments where people go, "What was he thinking? Why, why would you?" fly off to Cancun. I mean, it, it's one thing to leave the country, but I mean, he left Texas and, uh, you know, Texas is, is suffering. And most politicians have that gene that tells them, don't do this. You do not want to be on the, you don't want a picture of yourself on the beach in Cancun when your constituents are freezing, covered with ice and snow. But apparently he is. Now, uh, the word that we're getting is that He's uh, he's hopped on a plane and is coming home. Uh, he's coming back to uh, he's coming. He's coming back to Texas. So that should be interesting. So what's he going to say? Like, oh, geez, I'm my bad. Really sorry. I didn't know that you actually wanted me around here. I didn't think there was anything that I could, in fact, do. Um, I don't know. Um, my colleague, uh, Jim Swift at the Bulwark, who's the producer of this podcast as well, I, I think has it. Is, 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 is Jim around? Can Jim come yeah, in for a minute? Jim, hey, there, there you are. Hey, good to see you. Um, just have a seat here, would you please? Um, because yes. I, I, I think you have a theory. Now, by the time people hear this podcast, they'll know whether, you know, what, what Ted Cruz says. But, but, but I, I want to associate myself because I, I think you've stuck the landing on this one. So what do you think Ted Cruz will say when he gets off that plane all tanned, rested, you know, just saying, hey, guys, did you miss me? What, what, what does Ted Cruz say about this? Charlie, I think he's going to say something like, I was just ferrying my wife and children to ensure they made it safely. And the bitter, partisan, angry media took a cheap shot. I spent more time on planes and to sleep than I did at the beach. In fact, I didn't even go to the beach. This is this is good. This is good. And I, I can I can picture he's got that beady eyed little angry. It's like it's like I am the victim here. You know, no, I am not going to apologize for spending time with my family. And if the media wants to make an issue of that. OK, so I mean, I think that on the over under, that's a lot more likely than Ted Cruz getting off the plane and going, man, I screwed up. I have no defense. I mean, I. Remember he tweeted, didn't he tweet out yesterday that he has no defense because people were saying, remember when you used to dunk on California for its power problems and here you are and you are completely, yeah. It was a very rare sort of tweet. He might even also, after he attacks the media, say, you know, what am I, what am I supposed to do? I'm a U.S. senator. This is a state problem. Texas is independent Weak. from the, the power grid. And I, he, I, he, if he really wanted to double down after not apologizing and blaming the media, he could then yeah, take it a step further. Now, see, this is why he's got to be aggressive about it, because that's so lame that, you know, and I do see some people on on Twitter, as usual, uh, defending defending Ted Cruz, saying, well, I mean, what's he supposed to do? He's a senator. He doesn't run the state. Right. I mean, he's he's not going to be there pumping gas or or whatever it is that that, that he would do. Um, but but I think our colleague Sarah Longwell, Longwell pointed out, look, at least you act like you care. 
you know, there are things you can do. You have people who are suffering, you know, go out, bag groceries, uh, do something, at least go through the motions, Ted, given the fact that you have a kind of a reputation for being a heartless, cold, sociopathic bastard. <laughs> Why do you jet off to, to Cancun? So I don't oh, he's, know. A, he's a noted soup lover. Maybe he thought it was a uh, canned soup factory. Well, he obviously knows it was a mistake. Otherwise, he wouldn't have jumped back on. Of course, it, 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 in your version, he was always planning to come right back, right? This oh, was that's just what... spending some time with my family. How do you... It'll be impossible to prove unless someone from the airline industry wants to risk their job and reveal private customer data, which I doubt will happen. Well, I mean, we'll, we will move on. So, Jim, okay, I, I, I just, I just wanted to associate myself. I, yeah, I, I just want when, right. when, when, when everybody goes, hey, that guy Jim Swift called the shot. I, I want to be the guy in the stand going, hey, I was there. I, I saw that. I was, I was associate have, myself. We, we have it on record, and uh, thanks for I having know. me. I'm looking forward to today's show. All right. So uh, again, we're going to talk to Andy Slevitt, but I, I, I feel that we have to at least start off by by mentioning the, the story about Rush Limbaugh and uh, his double edged legacy. Um, I have my news. My newsletter is devoted to the whole Limbaugh thing. Um, and I have a piece about The Washington Post, which you can you can access. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to rehash all of it, except to say that, that uh, look, I mean, I was a talk show host for more than 20 years. So um uh, Limbaugh feels like he's been a sort of, you know, a shadow or a cloud or uh, an influence for the last 30 years. And when the news broke yesterday that he had passed away at the age of 70, which seems very young these days, uh, from lung cancer, I knew that I was going to have to write something about this. And I, I have to tell you, I, I have been dreading it for some time because um, I have some critical things to say. But I, and I do understand the importance and the value of not speaking ill of of the dead. And so I, I really I told my wife, I said, this this is one of the most stressful things that I've done in a long time, because you know what I want to say about Rush Limbaugh. And yet it feels awkward to do it on the day that he, he dies. But ultimately, I came to the conclusion and, and, and I don't know whether I'm right or not about this. Uh, I, I, I do have mixed feelings. Uh I, I think that we have to you can't you cannot overstate the importance that Rush Limbaugh had in what's happened to the conservative movement. Um, you can really track the trajectory of the rise of, uh, of of conservative ideas by tracking Limbaugh, but you can also track the derangement of the conservative movement. And so this is what I, I finally came back to is that, look, Limbaugh's legacy needs to be confronted because, you know, you cannot talk about this political moment we are in right now without at least confronting that. I mean, if there's ever going to be a reckoning, we have to include this. And so what, what I wrote for the Washington Post was, how big was Rush Limbaugh? We are all now living in the world that he created in his own image. No history of modern conservatism would be complete without recognizing that he was both the alpha and the omega, the founder of a right-wing media ecosystem and the architect of our current political moment Donald Trump and all. So again, you can you, you can you can read it. Uh, there's great pieces out there as well. Joe Walsh, um, woke Joe Walsh, uh, former congressman who was also a talk show host, has a great piece in Time Magazine. Uh, Jeremy Peters in the New York Times, as uh, other others. I will say this though, that I over the years I know that I people said, well, you're like Rush Limbaugh, you do what he did, 
And um, I always pushed back on all of that. But there's no question about it that that those of us that were in talk radio probably would not have had careers without Rush Limbaugh, which doesn't mean that we were all clones of his. And I I started off, I'll be honest with you, admiring him. I was uh, amused by him. He was uh, he was entertaining. Uh, I end up being totally disillusioned and appalled by him. But one of the things that he made it clear was that you didn't have to be boring. You did not have a moral obligation to be boring. And, and that's what changed political debate. Political debate and discussions were not entertaining before Rush Limbaugh. And so there was an upside to that, but there was also a deep downside for that, which was the trivialization of all of the things that we talked about. And I'm uh, one of the more controversial points that I make is that Rush Limbaugh was ultimately fundamentally uninterested in ideas. Oh, my God, what are you saying? No, I, I, I think that, that as time went on, it became clearer and clearer that, that he was about the shtick. He was about the sensational uh, you know, narratives. Uh, he, he substituted ad hominem uh, attacks for any substantive issues. And, and he was really the role model for, for Donald Trump. Look, I, Limbaugh at, at one point admitted that he was no longer really about conservatism. I mean, you could see that he said this. He said, he said, look, Donald Trump's not a conservative. I never talked about conservatism. In fact, uh, my Institute for the Advancement of Conservative Thinking is no longer um, existing. It's now the Institute for Anti-Leftist Whatever. So it all became not about talking about ideas or principles, which he really was not interested in. And it became all about the attack mode. And I think that we see where, the, where that went. So, look, I, I understand those of you that think that, you know, Rush, well, Rush Limbaugh was daring. He was funny. He was charming. But, you know, the problem is he was also dishonest and he was offensive and he made offensiveness fun. You, know, you ask, you know, how, how did we develop a culture where nobody ever apologized, where insults became the coin of the realm? Well, you can trace this all back. Uh, he cultivated this insensitivity on issues of race, gender. I mean, you know, long before Donald Trump came along, he was he was putting out he was, you know, mocking Barack the Magic Negro. He was calling a young student a slut and never apologizing for it, really. Uh, so, you know, I, I know that one conservative publication talks about his co gr brilliant comic riffs and combative ebullience. Well, OK, it's one thing to be entertaining, but it, it's another to inject playful bigotry into the heart of the right. Somebody pushed back and said, well, Charlie, bigotry is never playful. Well, that's the point, is he made it all about the lulls. And, you know, that, that's, that has really had an effect on the conservative movement. He made, I mean, there was a long time when, when I think conservatives told themselves that Rush Limbaugh is making conservatism cool. He's popularizing the ideas. He reads William F. Buckley, and he's sharing those ideas with the masses. And maybe that was true for a while back in the 1990s. But ultimately, I think that Rush Limbaugh made conservatism meaner, dumber, and more dishonest. And, and we're, li we're living with all of this. And, and this is what really puzzled me. And I write about this in my newsletter. Um, and I'd written about it for the Bulwark last May, that he's known for for a long time that he had this battle with lung cancer. And I think, I guess I always think that people, when they're confronted with their mortality, are going to step back and go, all right, um, I, I need to take stock. I need to engage in some reflection. I need to think really hard about my legacy 
and how I will be remembered. Because I do think that you can change. I think that there is room for redemption. I know that not everybody believes that. But what was, and, I, and I'm still, I still am a little puzzled by this, that in some ways Rush Limbaugh, knowing that this day would come, saved his worst for last. You know, he was out there, you know, defending Donald Trump, who was pushing this bizarre, debunked conspiracy theory that Joe Scarborough from MSNBC had murdered an intern years ago. This was there was no truth to this. The woman's family was pleading with Trump, stop doing this. This is painful. And and then there's Limbaugh goes on the air and goes, oh, but Donald Trump's so clever. He's so subtle. He's saying it without saying it. And he's triggering the libs. It's hilarious. And it was like, whoa, this is this is just ugly stuff. I'm 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 sorry. You know, the, the fun of triggering people who care about morality. The, so the lie doesn't matter. Moralizing's a joke, and the cruelty was clever. And and this is what I, I asked back in, in May was does, does, is this the way that he wants to go out? Does he want to be remembered this way? And you know, throughout the year. When he dismissed the coronavirus as just a common cold and mocked mitigation attempts, that had real world consequences. Uh, the fact that he advanced the big lie about the election, that he never acknowledged that Joe Biden was the uh, was was the rightful winner, that even at the inauguration a month ago, less than a month ago, he was saying this is, you know, this is really not le leg legitimate. And that's and, and that's his final word. So, look, um, we can't really talk about we can't say we are in this crisis moment where truth has been shoved aside by extremism, while, you know, alt right bigotry has become a major factor on the right. And then at the you know, at the same time, go, yes, but Rush Limbaugh was great. We owe this huge debt of gratitude to Rush Limbaugh. We, we can't have it both ways. Like I do appreciate the people who say that. Death is the great leveler and that we ought to show respect. Uh, Jim Garrity over at National Review has a really beautiful piece making that case. I didn't take his advice, but I, I, I recognize the power of it. But if we're ever going to confront where we're at, if we're ever going to understand how we got to this moment, how we got Donald Trump, where Donald Trump learned some of his techniques, um, what's ailing the conservative movement? Because, you know, really, when you look at and I, I wrote about this in my book. And I'm, we're going to get to Andy stuff in just a moment here. But I, I wrote about this in my book. My, the title was How the Right Lost Its Mind. And it really was about, at, at bottom, fundamentally, how the conservative movement, led by people like Rush Limbaugh and then by, by Donald Trump, basically just abandoned any real interest in conservative ideas or principles. And it all became about owning the libs. It all became about the ad hominem attack. It all became about some sort of uh, cultural, uh, cultural tribal identity. And again, um, you go back and you look at the trajectory of, of Rush Limbaugh, gathers around him the, all of these Republicans. And he had an opportunity, I think, sometime in the 90s to be a thought leader. But he squandered it. He, he squandered that opportunity because... That really wasn't his shtick. You know, he every once in a while would admit that, you know, so I'm a radio guy. I'm more interested in radio metrics than I am in in advancing a political cause. I mean, he admitted this and people didn't, I don't think, fully understand that. So he went through the motions. You know, he had somebody ghostwrite some books for him. 
Um, I was going to mention the name, but I'm I'm not totally sure that I'm right about this. But you know, he didn't write those books. But um, and, and people begin to think of him as a thinker, but he but he wasn't. He wasn't, and we're we're all paying we're all paying the price uh, for that. So uh, you can check out my newsletter, Morning Shots newsletter. Uh, a lot of good stuff that's being written here t- today, uh, and, and I have the piece in the in the Washington Post. Uh, well, one of the things that I've really been wanting to do on the podcast, though, is to make a pivot from you know all Trump all the time to confronting the. The, the crisis and the issues that we're facing right now and and, and uh, obviously number one on the agenda and has been should have been number one on the agenda for the last year uh, is the is combating the coronavirus. And we are in the midst of uh, seeing this pandemic, which is still killing thousands of Americans uh, and amid the rollout of the vaccine, which is why our next guest is so important. And I'm so glad to be able to have somebody who is really right at the center, right at the center of the Biden administration's efforts to overcome this pandemic. Andy Slavitz, the White House senior advisor on the COVID-19 response. Uh, Back from 2015 to 2017, Andy was the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under President Obama, uh, and he oversaw Medicaid, Medicare, Children's Health Insurance Program, uh, all of that stuff. But uh, this is the big challenge uh, facing the fend- uh, pandemic. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Appreciate it very much. Of course. Glad to be here. Good. Well, let's just start with uh, w- where we are at. Uh, the, the president, uh, President Biden, the other day was asked about uh, when things were going to get back to normal and raised a lot of eyebrows when he said, hey, by Christmas, we should be in pretty good shape. And I think a lot of people want Christmas. That seems like a long time away. So give me your sense of like, you know, when when do we get over over yeah. the mountain, Andy? Yeah. Here's the challenge that I think is it from a communication standpoint, I think the 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 country and the public, at least this is my view, have been fatigued by this sort of continual it's almost over, it's almost over, it's right around the corner, this is not a big deal. And um and so while the country I think people in the country rightfully would like um, an answer to that question, probably um, trying not to give a false sense of precision. There's a lot that is uncontrollable in this um, virus. And if we pretend it's otherwise, you know, I think we're not doing it. We think we're doing a bit of a disservice. So I think what the president was trying to do is say, look, it is a marathon. Um, be, let's stay prepared for a marathon. Yes, there is a lot of positive progress. Cases are declining. Vaccinations are increasing and all of that. But um, it is while it is so tempting to throw out a date, I think the, probably the preference is to say, look, at the outside, here's what it looks like to me, and then that basically do everything possible to beat that. So, for example, I'll give you one example, Charlie, is um, we, we've, we've said that we will be we have enough vaccines to vaccinate the country by the end of July. Um, so whether that's good or bad, what one of the things I'd say is what we didn't do is we didn't include in that projection, access to the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Mm-hmm. So um, while as in the past, we might get, if everything goes right, that kind of commitment. But what, we, what we're trying to do is say, look, the FDA still has to do its job and the FDA has to approve the vaccine and we're not going to accept that. And I would rather move dates forward um, if we get good news than have, then things move backwards. And of course, you've got to account for unplanned things like like the weather this week and other things. So, I, you know, I, I don't think 
we're telling people what they want to hear. I don't think we're trying to give people a false sense of precision. We're trying to be very honest and say it's a, it's a little less precise than we'd like, and we're going to do everything we can to end this thing as soon as possible. It, even though there's been a massive increase in the supply of the vaccines that you've announced over the last uh, s- several days, there there does seem to be an access problem. And, I, you know, we, we hear these reports of people who just are, are not able to get access. Um, you know, they're sitting at their computers and, and they're refresh, refresh, refresh. And it's very, very hard unless you are super tech savvy to get appointments. So what would what is the problem right now that you that you're working on? To improve nice to be very that. clear. Yeah, very clear. We're going to be in a shortage situation for the next little while. And, um, you know, I would love to say that we inherited stockpiles of vaccine or that the manufacturers have been manufacturing a lot more earlier, which is um, what I think we believed when we came in. I think we have, you know, some leveling with people don't say there's, there's no stockpile. Um, but the vaccine companies are increasing their manufacturing capacity on a pretty regular basis, we're, we are providing, um, so we're giving them more vaccines. We're creating more places for people to get vaccinated. We've started a retail pharmacy program. We've increased vaccines by 60%. We're standing up these massive FEMA community vaccination centers um, that vaccinate tons of people quickly. Um, we're getting vaccines to community health centers. And we're, and importantly, we're giving everybody at least three weeks visibility into how many vaccines they'll be getting at a minimum so that they can plan and so appointments can be kept. I think what's frustrating to people is when they set up an appointment and then it gets canceled or um, what's really frustrating is when um, the appointments go to the, to the fleet and the sophisticated because you, as you just pointed right. out, there's plenty of people. You know, we put vaccines in a community, maybe a low-income unit community, but then someone from the suburbs has you know seven kids, each have three iPads, and guess who's getting these appointments and coming into these communities? So it's, it's patently unfair and problematic. Um, it is shortage behavior, right? It's, if, if there's any kind of shortage, there is uh, that that sort of thing happens, and we have to actively fight against that. But I will tell you that you know the, the shortage will persist to, to some degree or another. Um, you know, you know, probably for you know it'll be measured in months, not weeks, uh, but. Over the over the spring and late spring, I think that'll change, and we're actually going to probably be in the opposite situation where we're going to have vaccines chasing people instead of people chasing vaccines. And really, then we then it'll be incumbent on us to do a good job answering people's questions about vaccinations and so forth. Yeah, I want to get to that a little bit later. So uh, earlier this morning, uh, I heard you chatting with Jonathan Capehart over at the Washington Post and. Um, and about the cards that you were dealt. And I think he quoted you as saying that you play the cards you're dealt, not the ones you necessarily wanted, um, which which, ra- uh, which raised the question, what actually were you dealt? So, I mean, let, let, let's talk about what you inherited because it's it's sometimes not clear. What was the situation when you came into office on, on January 20th? Did you have a plan? Did you have the stockpiles? Um, was there was there something you could work with, or did you have to start from scratch? Yeah. Well, let me make, let me make a few points yeah. here, and and this is a, a bit of a sensitive question. Yeah. I want to tell you how I want to try to front, make my sure my answer falls in the in appropriate range. For one, it does absolutely no good um, to look backwards and appear to be being political or blaming the past administration. Number two. There's a lot of great people that were in that administration. Many of them are still here, and they're in the career civil service, and they did 
did fine work. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, I just want to be a little bit cautious to look like this is somehow political or blaming people because point of fact, your decision to get a vaccine and your decision to, to stay safe is a very personal one. It's a very local one. And it's, you know, it's too much already caught up in people's political identity. Um, at the same time, I think it's obviously important that we are level with the public and are honest about where we are. And so, in I think a very careful way, we've tried to say um, a, a couple things that um, we we did not we weren't on track um, when we came in, in the sense that there weren't enough vaccines purchased. Um, there was no effort made at creating more more vaccination locations or additional vaccinators. Now, those ideas absolutely may have been there and floating around, and maybe they just didn't have time to take off. But there wasn't. There wasn't a document, a piece of paper. If you said, "Hey, yeah, um, how, how would we, how do you plan to vaccinate the country?" Let me see it. Maybe we'll like some of it. Maybe we'll amend some of it. Maybe we'll approve some of it. That 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 wasn't um, existed. What they what they spent a lot of time on, thankfully, is getting the pharmaceutical companies um, up and running and the development process and all of that. So we've got to carry this the next leg. Okay. And I would just say, um, at the end of the day, if we do this successfully, everybody involved deserves. Some, some matter of credit. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I, I personally believe credit should be, credit should go around um, liberally for any success. And I hope this is an administration, uh, I hope this is a, a, a process that at the end of the day, everybody who had a hand in it feels good. And so for that reason, I don't want to be okay. labor. Okay, that, that's you know right. I mean. Yeah. So the controversy right now um, centers around reopening schools, which you are familiar. So the question is, um, you know, what what is the timetable? Parents want to know when do their kids go back to school, and more specifically, what exactly is the administration's position on vaccinating? teachers, because there are people out there saying that you're not going to be able to reopen the schools until all of the teachers are vaccinated. So is that a precondition for opening the schools? Yeah. So, okay. Um, another great question and one with a little bit of complexity to it. Let me do my best okay. to, to, to sort it, to sort it through. Um, so, I mean, I, again, here we all as parents and teachers as well, and students, we, we crave a precise answer. It will be safe on X date to do to do Y. And um, what we've done is we've let the science and the scientists do their work at the CDC, not to answer the question if schools mm -hmm. should open, but how should schools most safely open? And I say most safely because I think we all have to understand that we're talking about relative risks. And so they basically said, "Look, there you can open schools safely," and it was actually in Wisconsin um, where they where they took a look at some of the schools that had done that well, and they found where, where there's mask wearing and there's distancing and there are other things that are spelled out in a document they released last week. Schools can open safely, and consistent with all things public health, everything that happened would, would be would be better. So if if all teachers were vaccinated, that would be great. And I think the president, the vice president. Um, believe that states should prioritize teachers high on the list. Now, having said that, but, but that's not a no go. Go no go. Yes, it's not exactly. an absolute precondition. Having it's, said that, they, yeah. they 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 believe that you can open schools safely um, without teachers being vaccinated. That when I say they, that's the CDC's um, report, and that's and that's their conclusion. And you know, as a as a White House 
you know, operating guy. I'm in no scientific, I've got no scientific standing to, to question it. But I will say this, is that, is that you know, we'll go back to what we were talking about earlier, and let's be very candid, we are in a shortage situation. And so even if teachers were prioritized and are prioritized, which we think states should do, uh, there's still not enough tests to go around. And governors are made, facing the decision of, do I prioritize teachers? Do I prioritize people in nursing homes? Do I prioritize, yeah. you know, and so so as long as there's a short, so the, the, who's the, the culprit here is the fact that we have a shortage. And if we don't continue to come back and acknowledge the fact that for a short period of time in the near future, we are going to be in a shortage situation. There will be people that will be unsatisfied. There'll be very difficult decisions to make. And we want, um, and, and all the people we want to take priority, um, it's not going to be able to happen um, as quickly as we'd like it. Well, so, I mean, everybody wants to make the science, have, have the decision driven by the science, but this has become a very, very political issue. Um, Republicans are using this as a cudgel against the administration. It's already become an issue around the country, reopening the schools. Uh, you also have the issue of the teachers' unions. Uh, you've had good alliances with them, but some of them have been very, very recalcitrant. So at what point does the politics override the science in on this issue? Well, look, I, mean, I, I, won't, I don't know about the politics, but I'd say people's feelings are understandable here. A teacher saying, gosh, um, you're going to ask me to go spend a day with, you know, 30 individuals that while they've spread the virus less, they may still spread it. And I have, you know, family members at home. Um, I, am I safe? Very reasonable questions. Parents who say, you know what, we're not seeing a lot. Uh, 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 CDC is saying that schools can open safely. So why aren't they open? Very reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, so look, sometimes there's a bad guy and a good guy in this process. Um, and sometimes you just have a challenging situation where you have to do the best you can. I thought the state, I thought the CDC did a very admirable job putting out very specific and clear guidance to say, look, if you want to open schools, this is what you should do. So it doesn't say open them. It says if you do these things, you can open them more safely. And that's that's what the science can do. I thankfully not paying much attention to the politics. Obviously, I'm aware of the politics, uh, but the politics are driven largely by people's very strong feelings. Yeah. And I think people's very strong feelings here are quite understandable. And, you know, I think everybody wants a, a politician who can say, I have the answer. It'll make everybody happy. Um, and politicians, of course, love to make people happy. Um, but and of, and of course, the president wants to solve this problem. But um, I also think that being very candid and saying, yeah. what's the best we can do right now? The best we can do right now is to give you local school districts a roadmap on how to open. It's still a local decision. Um, but if you so, do these things, we yeah. you can do it safely. So how worried are you about the variants and the 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 reports that that the that the the vaccines are turning out to be a little bit less effective when it comes to the variants is that going to does that have the potential of just of derailing what you're doing So I'm worried about the variants but I'm also I'd say more encouraged than discouraged about the news around the vaccines and let me just quickly as I can just spell yeah. out what the news is So the variants, I think we all know, are a fact of life. Um, they're not a happy fact of life. They're happening um, at a rate that is more quickly than the evolutionary biologists thought they would have. But again, you know, it is what it is, and you face the you face the facts. The, the the major predominant variant that's now in the country, the B117 vaccine, the one that came from the UK, that vaccine, the um, the um, 
we we have a very the vaccines have proven to be very effective. Um, the both the Pfizer and the Moderna, the so, uh, the one that's from South Africa has proven to be uh, more challenging. And here's where the news is interesting to interpret. Here's what the scientists tell me: that the vaccines don't work as well on the South African um, mutant, but they work over a threshold. What does that mean? So I say, well, I mean, they don't work as well, but they work over the threshold. Was well, apparently there's a there's a threshold upon which above, if you're above the threshold, the vaccine works. It creates antibodies. It doesn't create as many antibodies and doesn't work quite as well, but uh, but but uh, it works well enough to create protection. And Dr. Fauci and, and others I've talked to um, felt that was uh, more encouraging than not. Now here's the other important thing: um, vaccinations um, should continue to be updated to address new strains. And so I've spent time with every single one of the pharma company CEOs and the pharma candidate CEOs, and they're all of them in the process of making sure that their vaccines can continually be updated. They all seem quite confident, as does the FDA, that vaccines will be able to be confident. So this is a, a case, Charlie, where we just need science not to be static. Yeah, it's a moving target. To keep up and keep ahead. <clears throat> Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. At, at some point, you will have enough vaccines. And then we have to look at the question of, are we going to get to herd immunity? And you correct me if I'm wrong on this. You know, my understanding is you need to have like 70 to 90 percent of the population uh, to, you know, to be vaccinated or somehow immune to achieve herd immunity. At that point, the problem becomes getting people to take the vaccines, right? Because we do have an anti-vaxxer movement and, and faction in this country. Mm -hmm. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome the number of Americans that don't trust the vaccines or just choose not to get it? Yeah. So there's a large number of people that are in a, probably you wouldn't consider them anti-vax people. You'd consider them vaccine hesitant or maybe vaccine curious, which is this other term that, that may be mm -hmm. appropriate, which is to say, they have legitimate questions about the vaccine and they shouldn't be treated as a monolithic kind of group of people who are just anti-vaccine. There are more people, many more people who are in the category of, huh, sounds interesting, but I got questions. And you know, we need to, we just need to give them straight answers to their questions because these are very safe vaccines, very effective vaccines. And it would be helpful if people had a trusted place to go, whether it's their doctor, their hospital, their pharmacist, their their priest, um, uh, you know, the CDC, that can give them straight answers to those questions. And we're finding is that those many of those people, a lot of them wanted to see the first batch of people go get vaccinated first and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And and the numbers are phenomenal. We've got you know we've got fifty five million people vaccinated, and you know fewer than a hundred people who had even had a temporary allergic reaction. Um, we know from all of history that vaccine um, side effects occur in the first two months. Um, so we, which, which, uh, we feel, so we feel very, very good about those things, but there will be misinformation out there. There will be disinformation out there. Um, and so we have to be, I think, effective at striking up very good local conversations with people, people they trust and answering their questions and not treating people who have questions about vaccines like they're lepers, right? Just because mm -hmm. they want to know. What happens if I'm in childbearing years or, you know, whatever their question is, um, if we legitimately answer it, I think we will get to very high numbers of people that take the vaccine. Andy Slavitt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Andy Slavitt's the White House Senior Advisor on the COVID response. And we, we know you're a very busy man and really appreciate your time today. 
uh, such a pleasure to be here, Charlie. Alan, thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.